I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn again to the passage that was read a few moments ago in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, if you are using the Bibles there in the chairs, it's on page 814. So we've been looking at a series on here in Ephesians of viewing the church through spiritual eyes and the importance of having the right vision so that we truly understand the blessings and opportunities that are available to us. Hetty Howland Robinson Green was known as the Wizard of Finance and the richest woman in America during her lifetime. She is still considered one of the richest women ever in our nation. She inherited some of her wealth, but she was also a shrewd businesswoman. In fact, it is said that she was a better investor than most of her contemporaries on Wall Street during her lifetime. Estimates of her net worth ranged from $100 million to $200 million, and that was during the late 1800s and early 1900s. The equivalent today would be almost $2.5 billion to $4.75 billion. She had great wealth, but the Guinness Book of World Records named her as the greatest miser. She was known as a cheapskate. She refused to spend money to heat water. She wore one single dress until it would wear out, and then she would replace it. It was said that she ate cold oatmeal because she didn't want to increase her fuel cost by heating it. She once spent several hours in, at night looking for a two-cent stamp that she had lost. Now, those are some of the rather humorous sides, but unfortunately, there were some tragic aspects. Her son, Edward, or Ned, broke his leg, and Hetty tried to get him in, admitted into a free clinic for the poor. But as she tried to do this, she was recognized for who she was, and they wouldn't let her have the free health care, and so she refused to pay and decided instead she would treat him herself. Unfortunately, his leg did not heal. It became infected and had to be amputated. It is sad that her wealth was of no real benefit or blessing to her or her family during her lifetime. You know, money can be a wonderful tool, but it is a horrible master. And yet we have tremendous blessings as believers. The letter to the church at Ephesus tells us of the amazing spiritual inheritance and great spiritual wealth that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. Yet how many Christians live a life of miserly spiritual blessings and fail to recognize the great power that we just sang about when our eyes are upon the Lord? We fail to avail ourselves of the according to the riches of the glory of His grace that is spoken of in verse 7. Yet those blessings, those riches are described, and, and we've considered this. We actually took two weeks looking at that one long sentence from verses 3 to 14 that are speaking of the great blessings that believers had. We saw that we're selected by the Father who, who chose us in eternity past for the purpose that we would be holy, he adopted us into his family and we are accepted based on the work of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. 
We're saved by the Son. He redeemed us. He, he forgave us. We're purchased with His blood. We're forgiven of our sins. And He did this according to the great wealth, not, not simply giving us a dime out of His wealth. He's provided us with discernment and a spiritual inheritance that, that is secured by the Spirit who has sealed us in Christ and, and guarantees our future inheritance that, that really the Spirit is that first deposit, that first installment of our inheritance. I mean, this is what is spoken of in verses 3 through 14. And this wonderful outpouring of praise that is mentioned in those verses then moves Paul to pray. And so we find his prayer beginning in verse 15, going down through verse 23, and this also is one sentence in the Greek text. So we have two very long sentences in the Greek New Testament that are speaking first of all of the praise and then of prayer. And it's interesting to see what Paul is praying. This is really the outflow. This prayer is the outflowing of somebody who's had their spiritual eyes opened. But I want us to consider again, we're going to reread that passage that Pastor Daniel read for us a few moments ago. And as we do, I want you to examine and consider what does Paul pray for and what doesn't he request in this passage. If you have your Bibles open, follow with me as I read again, beginning in verse 15 of Ephesians 1. Therefore I also... After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what, is, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worketh in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's look to the Lord in prayer as we look into this passage this morning. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold the, the tremendous riches of the inheritance that we have in Christ, and that we would avail ourselves of the power that is available, that we would live in victory for it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In this passage, I want us to see that those who rejoice in God's power and of, in that work of salvation will really be motivated to pray while we live under the recognition of Christ's authority and His power. This is a very purposeful prayer. But it, it's a prayer that demonstrates a practical faith. And these come together. I, I, I said as we read this, consider what Paul isn't requesting. And it's interesting because what we don't find here is what we often pray for and should. Not that it's wrong, but to bring it into perspective, there, there are no requests here for material things. He's not asking God for things that they don't have. He's praying that God will reveal to them what they already have, opening their spiritual eyes to the wealth and resources that are available. 
Now, it's, it's not wrong to pray for physical requests, for, for health needs, financial challenges, unemployment issues. We should pray for those. We bear one another's burdens. That, that is right. That is appropriate. But we must not neglect the greater, the spiritual needs, those things that have an eternal spiritual focus. And, and this is what Paul is praying, that they would know God personally and intimately and that that knowledge of his power would really revolutionize their lives. His emphasis is on their spiritual perception and their Christian character. So let's consider what is involved in this prayer. First, the prayer responds in, to personal growth. The, the Christian life is really revealed, it's evidenced in two dimensions. There's, there's the vertical aspect, but there's also a horizontal aspect. And both of those are coming out in this passage. Both of them are, are part of the testimony of the believers at the church at Ephesus. Notice what Paul heard about them. He says, I, I, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. And so now he's going to pray. I don't, I, I don't cease to give thanks mentioning you in my prayers because he saw their faith in Christ and their love for Christians. And, and these really are essential Christian graces. The first one that is, is mentioned here is that true believers display a genuine faith. You know, Paul wrote two letters or wrote his letter to the church at Thessalonica, and at the beginning of that, 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 was a, that was a church where he went, but he was not able to stay very long. Because of the hostility of the unbelieving Jews, he was, he was driven out of that city, but when he wrote back to them, he said, I remember your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus. He wrote his second letter to them and he stated the same thing. He began by saying, because of your, your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Look, that's the testimony of a, of a Christian. The characteristics of genuine salvation are a growing faith and a love for believers that we ought to be developing in our doctrinal understanding, in, in our spiritual maturity, that, that it really helps us get solidified so we aren't, as Ephesians 4.14 is going to warn, we're not carried along by every wind of doctrine that comes along. And this is a great need in our day because there are doctrinal winds coming from every direction. But when you're born into God's family through the regeneration by the Holy Spirit, you believe things that the truth, truthfully our world thinks are crazy. I mean, that we believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. I mean, when, we're, when we are told over and over to trust the science, that, does, that doesn't fit science. And yet we, we believe that. We believe that he lived a perfect, sinless life that he never did anything wrong in his actions or his attitudes and that he died in our place. And more than that, he rose again bodily from the tomb. And, and, and we, we are so familiar with this and most of us, it, it, I mean, those, those things are just common knowledge to us and, and accepted that there's, there's never a question. But that's not what our world would think. If you really press them on that, Oh, they might acknowledge some of it, but when you get into the definitions, there, there's, there's much doctrinal wavering. 
But if you reject any of those, you will not be saved. As I've said before, educated unbelief is unsaved unbelief. Because all of those are necessary for our salvation. And so there's that, that genuine faith and belief in what God's Word says. But the second aspect is true believers manifest a, a comprehensive love. Paul said he had heard of their love for all the saints. Now, remember, we talked about this, but the term saint refers to the spiritual position of anyone who has come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. The, the term is used nine times here in this letter to the church at Ephesus, while the word Christian is only used three times in the entire New Testament. It's highlighting the fact that they had been set apart that they have a spiritual blessing, that their hope is, is in heaven even as they struggled in that wicked city of Ephesus. So sometimes the question comes, so how do I know that I'm a saint? Well, this statement is a clear indicator of it. Do you have a love for believers? 1 John three fourteen says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. How can I know that I'm saved? Do you have a love for believers? You know, I, I want us to notice that the Holy Spirit highlights their love for all saints. It doesn't just say that you have love for some saints. You know, the, the truth is, some saints are easier to love than others. Some of us are easier to love than others. You know, in a church family, sometimes there are some people that just kind of rub you the wrong way. And I've said before, you know, before you get too upset about that, you're probably that person for somebody else. That, that, that folks is folks. But it says there's a love for all saints. And understand what that meant for this church at Ephesus. That meant the Jews and the Gentiles who had just been put together, and that really was highlighted at the end of the, the statement of praise in chapter, chapter 1, verse 12, when Paul says that we who first trusted Christ should be to the praise of His glory. Who's the we? Those were the Jews. We first trusted Christ. And then in verse 13 he says, in Him you also trusted after you heard uh, the word of truth. He's speaking of the Gentiles. So he's saying, you've come together, and this will be expanded upon in chapter 2. He's going, Paul's going to really expand on this beginning in verse 11 of chapter 2 as, as he talks about how the church is the place where the, the Jew or the Gentiles who were far off, they were without hope, without God, are brought near by the blood of Christ, and then that wall, that barrier between them and the Jews who were near, that, that barrier of hostility is broken down, and now they're put into a, a new humanity, the church. They're part of the same body. And so this is, this is what's being spoken of here. The, the prejudice between the Jews and Gentiles is, is removed because they have equal access to the Father by the Spirit. And so he's saying that you have love for all saints. And folks, we need to understand that to the, the extent that Christian love does not extend to all Christians, it fails to be Christian love. If, if we say, well, I can like some people but not others, and really the question is, we, we have to ask, do we have that desire and love for all believers? How do you do that? It takes supernatural power. That's what Paul is praying for. That their eyes would be open, that they would see the power of God, that they would understand they're accepted in the blood, therefore they are to accept others. 
And folks, this is, this is important because this is why a church is not a religious club. It's not merely a social gathering. Love is what distinguishes the church from a club. You know, in a club, you get to choose who you associate with. And I'll decide whether I want to join or not based on do I like that group. Well, we don't get to choose in the church. God chooses. We read that back in the first opening verses that he chose before the world was founded. And understanding the importance of that, the, the importance of growing in our love with one another and, and developing that, that compassion. You know, when I was a, a young senior pastor, I remember meeting with a couple that, that wanted to join our church. And they expressed that, that they had had difficulty uh, with people in their last two churches. And being naive, I thought, well, we can help them. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I learned really quickly that it wasn't them, it was her. And that problem was going to perpetuate. And it wasn't all that long, and she got cross and out of sorts with a couple of ladies in our church, and, and they left our church. And I, I wrote them what I thought was a gracious letter, but I, I pointed out, I said, you know, I, I know now that we are, we are at least the third church that I know of that you've left because of interpersonal problems, it might be good to consider what is the common denominator here. And, and I didn't say it to be unkind, but hopefully to have their eyes open. And maybe it's my, just my snarky personality, I don't know. <laughs> but I thought there's one thing in common here, because I don't know those other people, but I do know that this is a perpetuating problem. And it's one of the things that we find we grow in a church and really chapter 4 and following is going to talk about this. That we are to protect the, the unity that the Spirit has established in the bond of peacefulness and it's the work of God that has to do that. You know, we, we have to understand that this is part of, of our spiritual growth and to just move from church to church because we can't get along with people at best demonstrates a spiritual immaturity but it very well may reveal a lack of true salvation. Because Jesus said in, in John 13, 35, by this will all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the, that's the horizontal aspect. And we need both. We need, that, we need that growing faith, but we need a Christ-like sacrificial love, that commitment to truth and love. That's why I appreciate so much the unity that we have here at Tri-City Baptist Church. The joy that there is and the, the help that, that takes place for one another because th there's a danger we can be doctrinally sound and have an unloving disposition. Or we can be very sentimental but it not be truth-based. And, and we have to be focused on both. That, that we are doctrinally strong and biblically compassionate. So the prayer is that there would be that spiritual growth. The second aspect of the prayer, though, is a prayer that requests increased spiritual vision. In verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. The idea of the, the wisdom and insight and enlightenment mentioned here are what come from the Holy Spirit as he, as he turns the light on. We, we call it illumination. But as the light of the Holy Spirit shines upon us, that there would be that development. You know, in the Old Testament, 
when Moses spent time on Mount Sinai, in the presence of God, when he came down, his, his face radiated, it shone, and, and, and it, they, he had to put a veil over it. He had to wear a veil because the, the people of Israel couldn't look upon him. Well, the Holy Spirit uses that illustration to highlight the spiritual blindness of the Jews. In, for, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That was the testimony of the Jews. It's the testimony of the unsaved. The natural man does not comprehend the things of the Spirit of God. There's a veil that hides it. But it was very specific for the Jews because they had tremendous blessing. They had so much going for them. They had the law of Moses. And, and, and when Jesus was on earth and the, the Pharisees would say, We're, you know, we are Abraham's children. We, we know the law of Moses. And, he, and Jesus said, you read the scriptures, they testify of me. Why didn't they see it? Because of that veil. The prayer here is that that veil would be lifted, that we would see clearly. And so the, the believers will develop a spirit of wisdom is the first thing in this part, part of it that we see. The idea of wisdom is recognizing the true nature of things. We, we live in the, in the information age, but I don't think we would say it's the age of wisdom. You know, ser search engines can provide information, and even that sometimes is skewed. But true understanding means we have to put it through a biblical framework. We have to have a biblical grid and a proper way of applying truth to life. And, and there are a lot of people that think they have wisdom when what they really have is an opinion. You know, we, we live in the way, day of talk radio where you can call in and share your wisdom. No, that's just an opinion. And, and a, having an opinion is not the same as having wisdom. And unfortunately, we live in a world of deceit, of facade. Our world promotes the idea that to gain things will make you happy. When the Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. And yet, our world would view godliness as boring. That purity is somehow enslaving and yet sin is freeing. That's the lie of Satan. That is not having spiritual discernment. Some one commentator said this, we are prone to confuse prices and values. Ephesus was a wealthy city. But the Christians who lived in Ephesus are today in heaven. They are experiencing true value. And for the last almost 2,000 years, they have known the joy of investing for eternity, of that relationship with Jesus Christ. See, it's the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes so that we can be overwhelmed with the blessings of what Christ has done when it's so easy for all of us to focus on the trials. You know, it, sometimes we, we see the difficulties and we miss the blessings because we, we live with the difficulties. 
you know, when we have a flat tire, when the car won't start, when, when, when we try to do this and uh, something comes up and, and we, we get frustrated. Remember, even the trials are temporary. You know, do you think the believers at Ephesus had trials? Do you think any of those who received this letter when it was first written to their church are disappointed today that they trusted Jesus Christ? It takes wisdom, though, to see things in a spiritual light. The second thing is believers will develop a discerning insight. And again, that's the work of the Holy Spirit that, that turns on that light, that, that illumines that sin-darkened heart. That's why the, James tells us we're to be swift to listen, to hear, and slow to talk, slow to speak. Yet it, it's so natural and so easy to do the others. Well, I think... Let me share my wisdom. And realizing we all have blind spots, we need to be seeking to grow. But understanding when the Holy Spirit illumines our heart, it revolutionizes our life. When we see God's promises, when we understand His purpose for your life, when we can love His people and experience His power, that changes your life. And how does that happen? Well, the passage tells us. It tells us in verse 17, the end, it, it's in the knowledge of Him. Mankind's greatest need is to know God. And it's not enough to just know facts about God. We have to know Him personally and intimately. When, when we lived in Maine, we lived there uh, during the time, pastored in, in Maine for almost 18 years, and it was when uh, George W. Bush was president. And the Bush family had a summer home at Walker's Point in Kennebunkport. It's a quaint seaside community about 20 miles south of where we live. This is a picture of that, that, their summer home. This is about the view you would get when you would drive by it. And we drove by it a number of times. We could look, you know, if you got far enough up, you could look past the gate where the Secret Service were and you could look down their driveway and leading to the main house. The main house is a very beautiful home. And when the president was there, they would fly the flag, the presidential flag. The American flag would be flying all the time, but then the presidential flag would be there, it would be hoisted, and, and the, that would be just under the American flag. But we could tell when President Bush was there because of the planes that would fly all night. And we would hear them circling. And, and I remember on, on one occasion, I attended the um, American Association of Christian Schools Conference, their convention in uh, Washington, D.C., and we were having a White House briefing on educational uh, topics, and, and President Bush walked into that meeting. Un, it was unexpected. They had not put him on the schedule, and, and here he was in our meeting with our little group. I had the privilege at one time of shaking hands with his father, George Herbert Walker Bush, and, and when I was a graduate student in college. And, and one summer, we actually took our kids to hear his mom, Barbara Bush, reading stories. And our children were able to hear her read. So with that background, could I say that I knew President Bush? Well, yes and no. I knew some information I enjoyed the local reports that would show up in our paper about the family and different things going on. I, I drove by his house several times, didn't try to go in, <laughs> saw where the cameras were, knew the Secret Service were there. Um, 
I had been in the same room with him. But I really didn't have a relationship with him. And more than that, he didn't know me. Unfortunately, I think there are a lot of people who have that kind of relationship with Jesus Christ. They know the facts about him. They know where he lives. They've even been in a room like this when he's been present. Because he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst of you. But they don't have any relationship with him. You may be here this morning and not really have a relationship with him, even though you know a lot about him. But more importantly, does he know you? It says in Matthew, 20, Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Folks, this is the most important thing to settle. Do you have that intimate, personal relationship? It's not a knowledge of facts. It's not simply knowing where his home is. It's that personal relationship. And knowing the Lord is the most important thing. It's the greatest need. It's the need of our day. We live among lonely people. But John 17, 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This isn't an abstract concept, but a personal, intimate knowledge that comes through Christ by the Holy Spirit. So we pray to this end, that we would have that understanding. And then the third thing that we see in this passage is believers will develop a deepening comprehension. And, and there's three things that are mentioned. There's, there's three what's that follow. And you have the blanks for those. I'm going to kind of bullet point through them. The first one is, what is the hope? The biblical hope is not wishful thinking. But isn't that how our culture responds? Well, I hope it happens. You know, I, I hope that there isn't a, a, an accident on my way to work today. You know, I, I, I hope things go well. When, when we were flying back from Maine, uh, back in January, we were starting up the escalator. I've been in that airport many times. You go upstairs to go through the security checkpoint, and then you go back down to the gates. And we were going up, and I, and I noticed there's this currency exchange point just beside the, the escalator. And, and I've seen it there many times. I've always wondered, you know, why do you really need currency exchange in Maine? I, I know it's the international airport, but there's only a few flights, and those are coming from Canada. And so, you know, it's very rare that I see anybody there. And as I'm going up, I looked and I saw, I saw somebody standing there, which kind of surprised me. And then I realized it was one of the airport security that was there. And I'm thinking, well, why are they exchanging money? And as, I, as I'm going up, I'm watching and I realized they weren't exchanging money. They were buying lottery tickets. And I'm thinking, oh, why would they do that? Because they hope that they'll win. You know, I, hopefully that's not their investment strategy. You know, if I, if I invest $2 a week for, you know, I'll, I'll be set when I retire. And, and I, I really doubt it's because they just like scratching off that silver stuff. You know, there's got to be a cheaper way to do that if that's really what you want to do. But isn't that how our culture views hope? Well, I hope that this works. That's not biblical hope. 
Now, biblical hope is the assurance of a secure reality. It's the reality that we haven't fully experienced yet, but it is certain. That's, that's biblical hope. And so when, when Paul wants them to understand the hope of his calling, he's saying, I want, you to, I want you to have the confidence of your salvation. And yet this is, this is a challenge. If you aren't certain that you're saved, it creates a great anxiety and uncertainty. This is one of the questions I often get from our young people. Well, how can I know for sure that I'm saved? And if you've ever wrestled with that, and I have, I remember that in the past, it it brings a level of trepidation if you truly aren't sure that you're on your way to heaven. So Paul is saying, I'm praying that you have that hope, that internal hope based on his calling, because God chose you back in chapter 4, and you're secure in the Holy Spirit, we're selected by the Father, saved by the Son, secured by the Spirit, that ought to give great assurance that we can be victorious. How can I have that hope? Well, we've already considered, are you growing in faith? Paul said, I've heard of your faith. Do you believe? Do you believe that Christ died for your sins? Do you believe your sin separates you from a holy God and the only way is through Jesus Christ? Is there fruit in your life like loving Christians? Is there a hatred for sin? Do Do you have a hatred? It doesn't mean we don't sin, but does it bother you? Unsaved people don't hate sin. They hate the consequences. They hate getting caught. They may hate that they're not able to control it, but they don't actually hate the sin. Does it bother you that your sin grieves the Holy Spirit? Have you received that first installment of your inheritance, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Because His Spirit spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are His children. And Romans 8 says, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of God, he's not one of His. So that's part of that realization. So we have this hope. The second thing is an inheritance. What are the riches? Is the next statement at the end of verse 18. Those, those three what's. That what is the hope? What are the riches? And this really is a theme through Paul's letters as he speaks of this to the church at Colossae. He writes, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints of light. The, the culmination of our inheritance is, is being in His presence when we will have our glorified body. That's, that's what we anticipate. We can look forward to the, the culmination of our final redemption. We've been bought with a price. Our sins are forgiven, but we still struggle with sin. And so we're in the process of growing, of being, becoming holy, of being sanctified, and we look forward to when we will be in His presence. We call that being glorified. But if we don't understand what God is doing in the, in the future, then we're not going to have the right values in the present. We're not going to have the vision that we need today. And, and we may live as spiritual paupers with spiritual disease that could be healed by His power when His spiritual wealth is available. See, we as Christians don't have to sin. It's not a requirement. Now, we struggle and we do sin. But John wrote his letter and said, these things I write unto you that you don't sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate. And so that's the, that's the battle. That's why we struggle with even being considered a saint. Like, well, I don't feel very saintly. No, I've been set apart though. I belong to him. 
And it's because of the glorious grace that we see in verse 6, the Father's glory, verse 17, that we have a glory of the inheritance, His inheritance. And so we can revel in that. And then the third thing, the third what, is what is the exceeding greatness of His power? That we're to comprehend the, the magnificent power. And, and, and it's interesting, in, in verse 19, it's, it's almost like Paul is tripping over himself. The Holy Spirit is just giving word upon word to help us get the understanding of this transforming power. And so that's the third aspect of this prayer. The prayer recognizes God's power. And, and, and the Holy Spirit is really piling word upon word to help us here. It, is, it says in verse 19, that exceeding greatness of his power. The word power there is, is the Greek word dunamis. We get the word dynamite or dynamic from this Greek word. You know, there are television programs where, where they demolish buildings. And they, they have this whole long program. And really, the only thing I'm interested in is seeing the explosion. You know, I just want to see it blow up. And if I fall asleep before that happens... It's like that was a real waste because I don't really care how you wire it. I'm, you know, okay, I'm glad you guys know what you're doing to make sure it caves in the right way and doesn't damage other things. I just want to see the explosion. And I, I, to me, that's the excitement. To see the power. That's the word that's being used here. It speaks of that dynamic spiritual power that's available. But before that, Paul says the, the greatness of this power. And the word used there is mega. It's the, the greatness of this power. So it's speaking of the magnitude of the power. It's the, the mega dynamic. But before that, he has another word. It's exceeding. The exceeding greatness. And, and the word exceeding is it's a Greek word that pulls two words together. One is, is the word to throw. And the word that is before that is, is hooper or hyper, to throw beyond. And so it's the idea of throwing it beyond the mark, of going well beyond the, the spot, that it's, it's over the top, it's extended. So it's a, it's a hyper-mega dynamic power that is available to us. It's directed to those who believe. But the verse doesn't stop there. Then there's three more words speaking of power. The word working is the word that speaks of energy, and we get our word energy from the Greek, Greek word. It's the operative aspect of the power the the mighty power it speaks of the ability to rule or control and then it speaks of his the working of his mighty power the the word power there's actually a different word it's not the the word dunamis but it's a word that speaks of the capacity or strength so there's six words in this verse that are, are just trying to lay out the power of God, his, his hyper-mega dynamic energy that is strong enough to control and strengthen us as believers. Say, okay, so what does that mean? All of that means that we have an immeasurable capacity available to obey God. The power to change us from death to life. That's what chapter 2 is going to speak of. And it's at our Ability. It's, a, it's available to us. We can access this for spiritual growth and for victory in our lives. It's the power to endure in the face of disappointment and difficulty, the, the trials that come. It's the power to defeat sin. And if we are defeated by sin, it isn't because God's power is not available. And so we have to ask, am I not availing myself of it? 
You know, sometimes people don't really want victory. There's, you know, little pleasure in sin. I, yeah, I want mostly victory in my Christian life. But we, we have to get rid of those little sins. Don't give any area. Starve that. Or are we living like spiritual paupers when the wealth of God's power is available to us and our spiritual limbs become diseased? You and I have a wealth of spiritual power available to accomplish God's purpose and God's purpose is that we would be holy. So how are we doing? Well, how is that power displayed? There's three aspects that are brought out here and we're not going to expand on this this morning, but it speaks of the, the resurrection. He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's the power. Then the exaltation, he seated him at the right hand in heavenly places and his supremacy, his majesty, his, his dominion, he's above all powers and authorities, seen and unseen. The spiritual battles that are raging. And so the fourth aspect we see is the power rejoices in Christ's exalted authority. And we're not going to take time this morning to develop that, but this is the, the flow of the prayer. So let me ask you, do you demonstrate a living faith the growing confidence in the Word of God? Is it your testimony that others have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you displaying a love for other believers and not just our own little social club, our spiritual club? Do you have spiritual discernment? Are you teachable in discerning what might be blind spots? Do we understand the privilege and the opportunity that you have to grow in Christ and the, uh, the amazing power that is available to change in those areas where we think, yeah, I just don't think I can ever change? You know, meditate upon His power. Pray for that. Have you experienced that transformation? A changed desire for God and His Word. I mean, before you were saved, would you really be sitting here this morning? A desire to be with His people? To come to a small group on a Wednesday night after a hard day at work when you're tired? What about your life goals? Do you have a desire to be in heaven? Do you have that longing? Say, you know, I, I struggle. I don't have the clear thought. Puritan Richard Baxter put it this way. My knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. But tis enough that Christ knows all and I will be with him. Or as John Newton said, and we're all familiar with the words, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. How is your spiritual sight this morning? Do you see the inheritance you have, the power available? Oh, let's make this our prayer. Not just for ourselves, but for one another. Because when we have a deep-seated assurance of God's powerful work of salvation, it should cause us to pray for our spiritual growth both for ourselves and for others, and live under Christ's authority by His power. Is that your life this morning? If not, if you've never trusted Christ, we'd love to show you from God's Word how you can have that hope today. Let's pray together.